The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this Friday. U.S. stocks jump. The S&P 500 hitting a new record high as initial jobless claims fall and layoffs sink to a two-decade low. Here in the UK, the Bank of England says it'll modestly tighten policy over the next two years. As Governor Andrew Bailey tells CNBC, he must prepare the balance sheet for any future crisis. We've had two very big shocks in the world economy in the last 15 years. We've had a global financial crisis, we've had a pandemic. I mean, you know, one of the big messages for me out of that is we've got to be prepared. We don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to be prepared for things to happen. President Biden seeks to leave gas guzzlers in the rearview mirror, aiming for at least 50 percent of all new U.S. cars to be electric by 2030. Beyond the devastation of the lives and livelihoods and the health of our very planet, when I hear climate, I think jobs, good paying union jobs. Cacao Bank makes a spectacular debut in Seoul as the online-only lender becomes South Korea's biggest retail bank. And it is the end of an era. Lionel Messi and Barcelona part ways after a two-decade love affair coming as the Catalan club and rival Real Madrid reject the sale of a 10% stake in La Liga to the private equity giant CVC. So let's start this morning where we've started all week pretty much, uh, checking in on corporate earnings here in Europe. Allianz is the latest to deliver us numbers. This is the uh, German insurer and asset manager. The uh, group headline, Allianz stays well on course in the second quarter of 2021. The operating profit outlook now expected to be in the upper half of the target range of uh, uh, 12 billion euros, plus or minus a billion euros. Total revenue growth of 10.9% in Q2 of 21. The group uh, giving us an operating profit line of 3.3 billion euros. The net income attributable to shareholders up 45.7% to 2.2 billion euros. So again, here we have another company that is in the financial space, that is giving us higher guidance going forward. I will just remind you, I don't know whether you will have seen this, but um, just yesterday, Allianz came out and uh, um, just confirmed a buyback of 750 million uh, worth of shares. This after the cancelled buyback program during the uh, heat of the pandemic. So what we've got here is improved guidance and a company that is restoring a buyback program, Juliana. 
Thanks so much, Jeff. Well, sticking with earnings, we've got numbers crossing from Venovia right now as well. Venovia, of course, in focus after announcing late on Sunday a revised offer for Deutsche Wohnen, 53 euros a share. In terms of the numbers, though, where Venovia's performance stands, the headline, uh, Venovia showing stable development and raising its annual targets for 2021. They've increased their earnings forecast for the full year. In terms of what they've seen so far, segment revenues in the first half of this uh, of 2021 grew by around 10% to 2.3 billion euros. Uh, adjusted EBITDA total improved by around 8% to 1 billion. Uh, uh, property portfolios in Germany, Sweden, and Austria have increased by around 4.2 billion. And they're saying strong development in large cities in Western Germany and Saxony and in uh, Stockholm and Gothenburg in Sweden. So raising their full year expectations. Um, that's the message from Venovia um, and uh, showing some decent earnings as well for the first half of the year. Uh, we'll look out if there's any commentary, of course, around the Deutsche Wohnen offer after that earlier one was rejected. All right, let's shift focus to some key macro data in focus. Later today, attention will turn to the U.S. non-farm payrolls after a disappointing ADP jobs report on Wednesday. Economists polled by Reuters expect the U.S. to have gained 870,000 new jobs in July, putting the employment rate at just under 6%. Weakness might boost concerns that the Delta variant is derailing the recovery, while strong numbers may spook the market and send Treasury yields higher. And uh, estimates for those jobs numbers really all over the place. U.S. initial jobless claims, meanwhile, continued to fall last week. Layoffs dropped to their lowest level in over 21 years as firms look to retain employees amid a labor shortage. 385,000 Americans filed new claims for unemployment benefits, slightly above economists' expectations. Let's talk about the Bank of England meeting. It's a little bit in the rearview mirror now, but I think there were so many important elements to this meeting that it is worth us spending a little bit of time on it. And of course, we had a terrific interview that Germana did. So the Bank of England has signalled it will modestly tighten monetary policy over the next two years as the central bank kept interest rates on hold. The bank said it would begin reducing its bond holdings once interest rates reach 0.5%. And that is important, not tapering, actually reducing. This as it warned that inflation will likely surge to 4% this year. Germana spoke with Governor Andrew Bailey and asked him for his take on pay growth in the UK. It's very hard at the moment to sort of disentangle the pay story. For the, for the reason that in this country, a year ago, uh, average earnings were negative, which is in, uh, very, it's an unusual event. But of course, it means that the percentage increase from, you know, from then to now is, is much higher. Uh, and I've said a few times, actually, in, in, in the last few months, that, that you know, if there was no increase in, in, in pay in this country for the rest of this year, we would still have pay growth of 8%. And that's a big number by any, any normal or historical standard. So you have to put it in that context. The second thing is that the composition of who's in the pay growth statistics has changed. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a compositional effect that it, you know, the people who are in the pay growth statistics at the moment are people who tend to get higher pay increases. Co that's because of COVID. The impact it's had on people, the lower paid people, in, particularly in the service sector. So again, you have to sort of factor that in. Now, we've, we've done our best to sort of 
take all of this apart and say what's going on under, underneath. And yes, there is, you know, there is reasonably robust pay growth. The big issue at the moment is that we've got an increase in vacancies. And we need the labour market to now start bringing you know, people coming back into the labour force and filling those vacancies. Because if that doesn't happen, we will get paid. It could be a mismatch, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the policy guidance review. Uh, a question I asked you in the press conference, and you articulated very clearly that uh, one should not perceive the balance sheet reduction to be a substitute for rate hikes. Yeah. Why is balance sheet reduction a priority right now? Why, why are you so focused on it? And why did you make this announcement today? Well, my view, uh, uh, by the way, of course, today we've not announced that we are reducing the balance no, sheet. We've of course, you've that, changed yeah, the guidance. Yeah. And I think it's important to give, you know, predict, to make that predictable, you know, to, to give a, a degree of certainty to how we will respond to that. I also think, as a central bank, of course, we're, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not alone in this. I mean, other central banks are in the same position. You know, our balance sheets have expanded very substantially as a result of the necessary actions we've taken in terms of asset purchases. Our balance sheet is, I think, it's over 40% of UK GDP now. By historical standards, that's very big. Now, we, we may have to do this again if we get some unpredictable shock in the future. And if we're going to use this as a tool of counter-cyclical economic policy, which we have been doing, then I think we have to be... You know, very cognizant of the size of the balance sheet. We have to manage the size of the balance sheet more counter-cyclically. So we have to have in place policies that say, during the good times, during the recovery, here's how we will reduce the size of the balance sheet. And for me, that's very important because I've got to, you know, I've got to plan for the future about how we meet unknown future events. Yeah, we've had two very big shocks in the world economy in the last 15 years. We've had a global financial crisis. We've had a pandemic. I mean, you know, one of the big messages for me out of that is, We've got to be prepared. We don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to be prepared for things to happen. Well, let's have a look at how the market reacted on the back of the news flow uh, from the Bank of England. Um, Sterling, we're 139.21. And uh, to be honest, uh, we didn't get uh, very dramatic moves, did we, in the pound? And in terms of the gilts, I think... um, it wasn't huge either. Um, that gives you a sense of where we're sitting on the curve. The 10-year gilt at zero spot 527. James Athey, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments, called the market reaction pitiful, pretty pitiful. Um, what were you expecting, James? To be honest, I was probably expecting a pitiful reaction. Uh, I do think uh, Guild Market is suffering with with the weight of positioning, to be honest. I mean, it has been throughout this squeeze. We're probably somewhat cleaner now, but it does feel like the market was very much in in the kind of cheaper, steeper trades uh, and possibly in in swap spread narrowers as well, and and all of which uh, the sorts of trades that one might expect to work given a, a slightly more hawkish Bank of England. Is this going to be one of those events for the market where actually we don't quite recognise the importance of it in the moment, but as we review maybe uh, several months uh, forward, we look back and say, actually, maybe this was the moment where the governor was signalling some serious intent to rein in this balance sheet expansion. Just give us your sense of what you think the underlying messages are here and how the market should be responding. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's a really interesting question, Jeff. I think you might be right. I'd probably, I think if we do end up looking back at this moment and saying, hey, that was a really significant output from, from the MPC, uh, it might well be because the House of Lords report has been significant. I know Governor Bailey there was explaining, you know, the, the nature of counter-cyclical policy in his opinion, and that's why he wants to be able to reduce the balance sheet during the good times. And, and to be honest, that makes complete sense. I thought that interview was actually really excellent. Um, but I do, do think it, it's significant that the House of Lords is just exerting some political oversight with, with regard to balance sheet policy that's maybe led to this reassessment of how the balance sheet should be used going forward. And, and again, I, I think that's absolutely right and proper. Talk is cheap, so I remain unconvinced until I see this being put into action. Uh, what, one of my initial fears yesterday really was that drawing these lines in the sand at 50 basis points and 100 basis points uh, with respect to balance sheet unwind maybe just makes it a more difficult decision for the MPC to actually hike rates to those numbers because they carry greater significance. And, and we know central banks have been so reluctant to, to tighten policy full stop for the last decade or more. Um, in terms of market reaction, yeah, I mean, gilts at 50 odd basis points look ridiculously expensive, really. Um, but it, I think we probably need to get through summer, get back to the return of supply, possibly Jackson Hole at the end of August. I think at, at the moment, investors are reluctant to uh, engage aggressively in, in a, adding to some of these short positions, largely because they've been hurt during this squeeze. James, uh, good morning. Juliana here. Uh, what does it mean if we do see the Bank of England go ahead and begin to normalize policy ahead of the ECB and the Federal Reserve, which looks increasingly likely after yesterday? Yeah, morning, Juliana. I mean, <clears throat> versus the ECB, I mean, I don't think anybody is surprised. Anybody who's who's in markets or has been in markets for more than five minutes is probably fully convinced that the ECB is is not hiking rates until the end of time, and and balance sheet policy is going to be very divergent versus. Um, the North Atlantic economies, let's call them. Uh, in terms of the Fed, yeah, I think it's interesting. I've heard some uh, suggesting that the bank will be very reluctant to go ahead of the Fed or to be too far ahead of the Fed. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true with respect to balance sheet policy. It possibly is more so with respect to to interest rate policy. Um, but we certainly, you know, one of the the fears with respect to um, you know, running too far ahead of other central banks is obviously that currency can can appreciate significantly and that can sort of drag on economic activity. Uh, the UK probably will suffer that problem less than, than many others, uh, largely because of our current account deficit position. Well, we know the Federal Reserve is watching labor market progression very, very closely. We've got the big jobs report coming out later this afternoon. What kind of environment do you think we're in from a market perspective in terms of the numbers? Are we in a position where strong numbers is actually going to be market negative on the basis that it paves the way for a more hawkish Fed or strong numbers are good for the market because it suggests the economy is recovering in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely the right question to ask. And, and honestly, this market is really febrile, so I don't feel highly convicted around an answer. Broadly speaking, I do think it's we're more into the good news is bad news uh, environment post the June FOMC, essentially. That unpinned the front end a little bit. It gave investors just a little more uh, incentive, shall we say, to engage in some of those late, mid and late cycle trades in the rates markets. Uh, and, and obviously, the flip side for equities is just 
the punch bowl being taken away is definitely a headwind and one that needs to be priced because at the moment equity markets are you know still priced for beyond perfection really so i think you you know it, you probably get three or four different market reactions just depending on exactly how high the number is but also some of the other um you know facets of that report it's not just going to be headline uh, jobs growth i do think the size of the labor market is going to matter so the broader u6 unemployment the participation rate uh, and wages as well although again uh, the governor bailey interview that i just heard a snippet of uh, earlier in the interview i thought it was fantastic that he was mentioning the composition effect and the base effects in terms of wage growth because average hourly earnings in the us has definitely been suffering from those problems and i don't think the market has been um, you know, picking up on that as much as maybe maybe it should do, but all of that stuff is definitely going to be important for the market reaction. Broadly speaking, you know, I like curve flatteners. I think they win in two of the most likely environments from here going forward. One of which is obviously the Fed evolving its message in a hawkish fashion. So, be more specific for us, James. Then, what's the trading call and what's the buy and hold at the moment? Sure thing. So, yeah, I like 530s flatteners in the US. We like being long the dollar. We've been adding dollar risk throughout. And essentially, both of those trades will profit in a material risk off scenario or they will profit in a sort of pro-cyclical environment where the Fed is increasingly um, becoming more hawkish. The middle of the dollar smile, if you like is very, very small, very narrow indeed. And that really requires the rest of the world to, to be growing faster and or tightening monetary policy faster than the US. And given where China and the Eurozone are, I just don't see that as credible at all. Uh, so yeah, like long the dollar, like flatteners, uh, um, and like essentially being still headline short duration, but increasingly favoring longs in the dollar block where there's just greater value. To see you, James. Thanks for getting up for us. James Athey, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments. He's thinking, I was up already. I didn't need to get up for this show. I work in finance, you know. Coming up on the programme, US President Biden plans to phase out gas guzzlers with a radical EV pledge. It's all got a touch of the 70s about it, hasn't it? These calls to reduce gas miles and drive more EVs. We're going to tell you more about that when we come back. Plus, Juliana... Plus, Jeff, for more on the Bank of England's modest tightening warning, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give to someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Welcome back, everybody. Let's have a look at the market close then. So you know already that we had a positive close to the session. I think these uh, boards uh, perfectly illustrate the way the market reacted uh, to some of the economic data. And actually, the uh, data that we saw as a prelude coming into the uh, non-farm payrolls number was encouraging. Uh, Weekly jobless claims fell 14,000, giving us that 385,000 number. Uh, Layoffs the lowest in two decades. So the US economy firing on all cylinders then, or at least uh, showing that there is good evidence of a a pickup in activity. But I I don't want to alarm you too much, but we did have from the um, uh, Bank of America card spending survey uh, some interesting data that suggest actually a pullback in spending on credit cards in the United States the week ending the uh, 31st of July, the seven days ending the 31st of July, um, Bank of America putting that down to maybe Delta-related pullback in spending and a reduction in travel. It's just something to keep your eye on as we watch these emerging growth trends. Uh, Let's have a look at the uh, week to date. Um, This gives you a, a good sense of just how choppy the market has been across the week here and we've we've managed to eke out a, a gain so far we've still got today to play for of course for the week as a whole but we are just in positive territory on the four-day trading pattern so far robin hood uh, yesterday i said i really don't understand the drivers of robin hood at the moment again we had another big swing day as far as uh, robin hood trade was concerned with the stock uh, you can see down uh, 27 uh, percent here. I still don't really understand uh, why Robin Hood is doing what it's doing, but uh, needless to say that there is a lot of chatter on the bulletin boards about it, and there's a lot of discussion in the professional investing community as to whether you can take a few retail retail scalps by getting involved in this um, activity. Uh, fortune favours the brave, I suspect, but there are an awful lot of the brave who are lying by the wayside, chopped off at the knees, the wrong side of the trade. ARK invests, Kathy Wood, uh, the ETF. Let's have a look at that and just check in on the seven-day trade. There is a connection between these two stories, of course, uh, about Kathy Wood being invested in Robinhood. The innovation uh, ETF across the seven days up, uh, as you can see, 3.26% but in the session up 1.86%. The uh, Asian markets, let's have a look at the uh, Asian session and just show you uh, where these markets are. I'm not quite sure where they're going to appear. It'll be a pleasant surprise for both of us. The Nikkei 225 up a quarter of 1% at the moment. Hong Kong market is just about hanging on to positive territory, but again, more head scratching around Chinese regulations. There was a whole slew of announcements yesterday about the low content being carried on Chinese media outlets and how that needs to be reined in and citizen journalism needs to be controlled. And I think control is the most important word here because all of these moves that we've seen around regulation just seem to illustrate a a consistent desire in whatever sector you're looking at for the Chinese government and Xi Jinping to rein in businesses that they feel may not be doing the Communist Party's work. The uh, opening calls, 
Let's just have a quick look at these. Uh, the opening calls, as you can see, suggest that we will get a weak start to the trading session, but we're already getting some very interesting prints on European corporate numbers. Let's get out to uh, Juliana for more on this move by President Biden. You know, Juliana, you were not born, and I was pretty small when the first mileage requirement was introduced in the United States, 1975, after the oil shock, the stipulation was that the uh, vehicles should aim to deliver 27.5 miles per gallon within 10 years. That was the Fuel Economy Standards Law of 1975. Subsequently, of course, we saw Ford and GM lobby the Reagan administration very aggressively in the 80s, and they effectively pushed the number back to 27 miles per gallon. And where are we today? What is the best-selling car in uh, the Ford fleet in the United States? I think we both know, don't we? It is the F-Series pickup tells you an awful lot about sometimes how the industry rails against the legislation designed to improve our livelihoods. Oh, Jeff, I had wondered what the reference was to the 70s when you said earlier, it feels like we're back in the 70s again. My first car was a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I definitely think I struggled to get 27 miles to, per gallon regularly in that car. So it, it's definitely a tricky thing when you're driving those big SUVs and trucks over in the U.S. But President Biden, he hopes to change that. Uh, Biden has signed a new executive order calling for half of all new vehicles sold in the U.S. by 2030 to be electric. But the measure is not legally binding. Speaking at the White House, the president outlined his ambition for America to become the global leader in EVs a future of the automobile industry that is electric, battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, fuel cell electric, it's electric and, and uh, there's no turning back. The question is whether we'll lead or fall behind in the race for the future. It's whether we'll build these vehicles and the batteries that got them to where they are in the United States, here in the United States, or we're gonna have to rely on other countries for those batteries. Whether or not the job to build these vehicles and batteries are good paying union jobs, jobs with benefits, jobs that's gonna sustain the continued growth of the middle class. They have to be, they have to be made here in America. Right now, China's leading the race. It's one of the largest and fastest growing electric vehicle markets in the world. Here's a look for you at some of the key automakers in the U.S. We saw a strong share price reaction in Ford and GM in particular. Tesla uh, shares traded slightly higher, but uh, underperformed a little bit. Uh, worth noting that Elon Musk took to Twitter, suggesting that he, Tesla and Musk weren't invited to the ceremony. Um, so take, take it as you will. Uh, Volkswagen, meanwhile, has reported an almost 100% jump in ID electrics vehicle sales in China since last month with 5,800 units delivered. But the German car maker needs to pick up the pace if it wants to compete with local rivals Neo and Xpeng, which both saw sales hit around 8,000 vehicles in July. A bidding war has erupted over Vionier after Qualcomm offered to buy the Swedish auto parts maker 
for $4.6 billion. That represents a premium of more than 18% versus a bid made by Canada's Magna International in July, which had been accepted by Vionier's board. The Swedish group listed on the Nasdaq says it will evaluate Qualcomm's offer. ThyssenKrupp has sold its infrastructure division to a German investment company for an undisclosed fee as it pushes ahead with sweeping restructuring plans. That deal comes a week after Thyssen sold its mining business to Danish rival FL Smith. Uh, Tissen said its latest sale uh, constitutes a key step in, quote, sharpening its portfolio of products. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.